Um, it is Joel and it's page 912, um, beginning at chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Petuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for, her for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, dried up the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. 
With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops, like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Thanks very much indeed. Um, Danny, I wonder if you come and join me here. Um, as we uh, start uh, a new Bible book, and especially one that might be unfamiliar to some people, it's quite a good thing to just think about what goes into understanding it and preaching it. I expect some people will have never looked at the prophet Joel before. So Danny and I are going to have a little chat. Um, basically, as the pastor, I'm just testing that the next three weeks are going to be up to speed. You know, if, if he fails, we'll move straight to the next song, and that'll be it for tonight. Danny, just tell us a little bit about what type of literature Joel, Joel is, what, you know, what makes it distinct. Um, so Joel is prophecy. As you see there in Joel chapter 1 verse 1, it said the word of the Lord came to Joel. Uh, so Joel is a prophet, which means he's speaking God's word. Uh, and Joel's actually speaking God's word to Judah. So after Solomon died, 
Um, Israel had a civil war and split in two. Israel was in the north, and then Brexit happened, and Judah is in the south. Um, so Joel is speaking the word of the Lord to Judah. Now, as you come to, to preach prophecy, you know, we're looking back um, two and a half plus 3,000 years. Uh, what are some of the challenges just in general about speaking, uh, preaching prophecy and, and how to, to, to make it contemporary relevant today? Great. So, um, f- first of all, o- over the course of the next few weeks, sometimes we're going to be talking about um, things that specifically happened to Judah and what happened at that time. And then sometimes we're kind of going to fling ourselves forward to a time that's not yet been even now. <laughs> um, so we're going to have a kind of multi-perspective uh, as we look at that. I'll try and flag it up as we go so that we know what kind of era we're in. Um, uh, I, I think one of, the, one of the really helpful contexts for, for any prophecy is going back uh, to the first five books of the Bible and specifically going back to Deuteronomy where God set up his covenant, uh, his promises that he made with uh, the Israelites. Um, so, so at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses stands uh, on the mountainside and he preaches to the people uh, who are about to go into the promised land, the land that God had promised them. Um, and, and Moses, on behalf of God, charges them and tells them t- to keep their promises, to keep following God. Can, can I just read a few verses from what he says there in Deuteronomy chapter 28? You might have heard something like this in Joel. Um, this, is, this is what will happen to them if they don't follow God. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but we, you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes. You'll have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil. All these curses will come on you, because they did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst... In nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies of the Lord who he sends against you. So so, so that's the backdrop to this. Uh, Joel doesn't come without warning to the people in Judah. They knew that this was going to happen. In fact, they'd signed up to it. They'd agreed to it. God had made a covenant with them, uh, and they'd agreed. They'd said that they would follow God. What happens if they don't? So so in, in, in one way, Joel as the sort of covenant law enforcer, calls them back to the promises made in the past, says this is going to happen in the future because you've broken them, and then also looks beyond that to how God is going to, to act to restore his people eventually. And, and that's, okay, that's, that's the way the prophets work. What are some of the particular issues with Joel? Um, as, uh, you know, because I, I did let you choose what to preach, but you, you picked a bit of a toughie, didn't you? <laughs> You didn't let me choose this. Well, did I? I would I, never have chosen this. <laughs> maybe, maybe I did give it to you. No. no, no. Um, yeah, so uh, Joel, the, the, we've got three weeks. So we've, today we're going through the kind of first half of the book. Um, so the big theme throughout Joel is the day of the Lord. Uh, the, that day that God is going to call them to account is coming. Um, and the day of the Lord actually will be, will be a day of, we're seeing mostly tonight, um, a day of judgment. But as we come on to chapter 2 and chapter 3 later on, we'll see there's also a, a day of great joy uh, where God will vindicate his people and will pour out his spirit upon them. Um, and, and there's, many, there's many great things to come. Don't worry. Tonight is not a taste of, 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 all, of all three of the weeks. Um, yes, so Joel, Joel calls them uh, to, to think about the day of the Lord and to repent, uh, to come back to God, to come back to those covenant promises and to begin to keep them again. 
So, so un, it's almost unfamiliar themes and difficult themes for us yeah. um, in a culture where, of course, being held to account for something or holding other people to account for things is... Judgment. And the idea yeah. of, we, you know, rightly, the idea of God's children, we, we find hard. Yeah. Okay. Now, with the life that you, you've already hinted it, you know, uh, uh, that later in the book, of course, there's the joy and the promise of God's spirit being given and his people restored. But why, why are you looking forward to preaching Joel? over the next three weeks. What's, what's got you excited about this as a book? Um, so, so I think, I think what's, re- what's really challenged me this, this week, um, particularly, is that uh, repentance, um, we, can, we can classically think, you know, we've been saved, mm-hmm. therefore we never need to worry about that again. <laughs> and, and actually, I, th- I, th- I think what Joel does is he calls us back to repentance, n- not in a kind of... Uh, you've been saved again and again and again and again, but, but in a way that it's good to stand before God, uh, to acknowledge what he's done for you, to acknowledge the judgment that is, that is not coming to you because of what he's done for you, uh, and, and to again repent uh, and to, to take sin seriously because God takes it seriously. Okay. Okay. Well, let me pray for you, um, and, uh, and then we're going to sing again. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our brother Danny and the way that you have um, gifted him to preach your word. Thank you for uh, the book of Joel, of the way you recorded it um, in the scriptures. You've kept it for us, the way you inspired Joel to write it, to, that you, you spoke through him and have spoken through him over the centuries to your people. Uh, please, our Father, we ask, would you speak to us tonight uh, through your servant Danny, And through your servant Joel, uh, by the power of your spirit, would your word live to us? And uh, would the result be that we draw closer to the Lord Jesus for his name's sake? Amen. Amen. Well, let let me pray. Father, as we come now to look at your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We thank you that this is... uh, the word that's from you to Joel. We thank you that we can hear your word as it is spoken now. Please change us by what we hear, we ask. In your name. Amen. Imagine that you're Simon Cowell. You're a judge. In fact, you're the judge. In front of you right now is a nice, big, red, shiny button. I want you to put your hands on the button. I really want you to put your hands on the button right now. Thank you. Come on, come on. Hands on the button. Look around. Who would you buzz out of church right now? (laughs) When you know, because you've all got your hands on your buzzer still, Alan has, when you know, press the buzzer. That was really quick. I saw something go there. How would you like to know who would buzz you out of church? That's a little bit different, isn't it? (laughs) We don't like to be judged, do we? We make judgments all the time. Uh, Never judge a book by its cover. Really quickly, point to which of these books you'd like to read. Possibly you'd not like to read either. They're both the same book, they're just different covers. Don't judge a book by its cover, but we we judge 
all the time. But we don't like to be judged. Maybe, maybe tonight you're someone who every time you walk into a room, you feel like people are looking you up and down. Like every time you walk in, you're being judged, critiqued, looked at. Uh, when, when I was in school, 16, uh, taking my English GCSE, uh, and we were all queued up outside. A few of us were there, uh, and my mate Birdie was there. That's a good scouse name, isn't it? Birdie, that wasn't his first name. Um, and we were all outside, and we went into the exam hall, and when the register was called, Birdie was no longer there. <laughs> he left. He didn't want to take the exam. He didn't want to be judged. M- maybe you're a mum tonight. Maybe life to you feels like it's just one judgment after another. Whether you breastfeed or not, or use use a dummy or not, or you've gone back to work or not, everything is just judgment. Maybe you're like me, that in work, the the most dreaded day of the year is your performance review. Every single time I had a performance review, I would say to Sarah that morning, I'm I'm pretty sure he's going to fire me. (laughs) And she'd be like, "I'm, I'm pretty sure that they would have mentioned something over the course of the year before today but but we don't like to be judged do we tonight we're we're looking at the book of Joel and as we've already heard it's a nice cheery topic it's about judgment just what you were looking for but but actually I really hope that the next uh, few moments uh, will really encourage and will really challenge and will really change us all so let's look at at Joel uh, chapter 1 verse 1 we've seen that uh, Joel is a prophet who speaks God's word. He's the son of Pethuel, so he's a real man. We don't know much else about Joel at all. It was possibly written in the 8th or 7th centuries BC. Um, and, and, and in verse 2, Joel cries out to the people to listen. He, he tells them to listen up. Listen, everyone who lives in the land. And he says, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? A bit like that song for Dr. Doolittle. Do you remember that one? Never seen anything like it in my life? No Dr. Doolittle fans? Okay, fine. Well, in in, in verse 3, he continues that. He, He says, tell it to your children and get them to tell it to their children. And then get them to tell it to their children. This is a hugely important message. You need to pass it on. You can't lose it. Nothing like this has ever happened before. So listen up. And in verse 4, he paints the picture, the first picture that we're going to see tonight, of a locust. Let me read verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. In, in Hebrew, there's 19 words for locust. They, they were really keen on locusts. In fact, they weren't. You only have that many names for something if you really are scared of them. Locusts were the kind of ultimate terror back then. Because look at what locusts, locusts do. They destroy everything. If, if a female locust lays her eggs in June, just have a think about how many descendants you think that that locust would have by October. Any guesses? Josh, throw out a guess. Were you you even listening? No, fair enough. (laughs) Great. June to October, 
18 million. Isn't that unbelievable? Locusts breed like rabbits. <laughs> it should be the other way around. Uh, in California in 1960, there was, there was a locust plague where uh, across the ground there was uh, one and a half locusts per square inch. A, a normal, normal locust swarm is around about 10 billion locusts. That's one and a half each for everyone on earth. Locusts get everywhere. They are terrifying. We don't think about it now. But, but, but even today, if, if a locust swarm is detected, if they don't get in within the first few days, there's nothing that anyone can do to stop it. We don't have the technology now. So, so when in, in verse 4, Joel paints this picture of locusts, he's talking about complete and utter devastation. And, and that's what he goes on to show up until chapter 1, verse 20. Up until verse 20, he shows us two things. Firstly, the destruction and the devastation of the locusts. And secondly, the weeping and the wailing of the people. So so let's look at the destruction and devastation of the locusts. Look at verse 7. Nothing's left. Never mind mind the food. They eat the bark. (laughs) They cut down the trees. Uh, one one uh, anthropologist said that it feels to him like locusts, after they've eaten the food, they then try and have some fun. <laughs> and for entertainment, they just destroy everything. And, and, and look, look at verse 10 with me. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Wine, grain, and oil were the three most basic products in Judah at that time. It's a bit like if we were totally out of bread, milk, and, well, I'd say meat, but you can say whatever you want, cheese. It's all gone. And not just that, look on at verse 12. It's not just the, the key ingredients that are gone. It's also the luxury goods. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree... All the trees of the field are dried up. Do you get the picture? There's nothing left. The locusts have destroyed everything. But he goes on. Look at verse 16. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flock of sheep are suffering. Those words, shriveled, ruined, broken down, dried up, moaning, milling about, no pasture, suffering. Nothing has got away from this devastation and destruction. And in verse 19 and 20, he slightly changes the picture. He goes on to talk about fire. Fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. This devastation and destruction is so total that even the animals are crying out to God. 
to destruction and devastation. And there's more to come in chapter 2. But for a moment, let's, let's think about weeping and wailing. Because if the locusts brought destruction and devastation, then the people of Judah are to weep and to wail. Before we do that, we're going to look at verse 9. And in verse 9, there's a final bit of destruction that's just, just been maybe missed. Let me read verse 9. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. Amidst all of the, the food shortages, amidst the fact that all of the greenery has gone, there's nothing left in the country. Verse 9 is the most destructive and most devastating thing of all. You see, every day, twice daily, the priests brought the offerings to God. They brought a burnt offering, and alongside the burnt offering, they brought a grain offering and a drink offering. They did that in the morning, and they did that at night. So, so sometimes we think of, of the priests of Israel, that they were kind of on holiday until one of the big festivals came along. I don't know, the festival of booze or the Day of Atonement. But they weren't. this was their day-to-day job. Morning and evening, bring the offerings to God. What was the grain offering? It was grain. And guess what else was in it? A little bit of oil. They made a well, and they poured oil into it too. And the drink offering, any guesses? Wine. The most devastating and destructive thing of all was that they could no longer offer to God. And if they could no longer offer to God, then they had no guarantees that God was still around. As far as they're concerned, not only have they got nothing physically and economically and for food, but they don't have God either. And that is the most devastating thing of all. So, Actually, this time, destruction and devastation. But secondly, weeping and wailing. So if we go back to verse 5, Joel begins to uh, paint these unexpected pictures in in amongst the devastation and destruction. The the first one is in verse 5. He tells the 24-hour party people to wake up and to cry. The people who are, who are drunk, the people who drink wine, the people who should be out having a good time all night and sleeping through the day, he says, no, something has happened here which means that things need to change. Wake up and wail. And, and, and verse 8, here's another picture of something that shouldn't be. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. A bride... A bride shouldn't be crying. But that's what he says that she's to do. Uh, I was reading in the paper this week, I think we've got a picture, um, of um, Ashley Grant-Smith and Danielle Cumberworth. They met each other on holiday a few years ago. Uh, They're from Leicestershire. uh, And they met each other on holiday and realized that they were from the same place and got together and came home. And they built their relationship and they got engaged. And the day before their wedding... Ashley died. Can you imagine? The weeping, the wailing. But that is what Joel says the people have to do because of the destruction and devastation that is coming. And and verse 11, here's another picture. Despair, you farmers. 
wail, you vine growers. I don't know how many farmers you know. We don't have too many farmers around here. My granddad was a farmer. Uh, Farmers don't normally weep and wail. (laughs) They're hardy people. They get up at four o'clock in the morning. They work all day, and then they go to bed and get up and do it again. They don't despair. They crack on. But Joel says, all of these things that you're doing, if, if you're out for a party, stop it. You should be weeping like a bride who's lost her husband. And if you're a farmer, you may as well give up. It's all changed. And, and the end of verse 12 really sums up what Joel is saying. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Um, we've, we've got quite a few things going on at the minute. Um, Sarah's sister uh, has, has been having some tests. She, she's not very well. She's going to have an operation uh, over the summer. My granny had a stroke last Sunday. Another auntie had a stroke on, on Saturday. All these things tend to come at once, don't they? I, I woke up on Monday morning, and, and just uh, we lifted the blind to let the breeze in. Have you been doing that over the... There's no breeze. I don't know what we've been trying. We've lifted the blind to let the breeze in. And I woke up, and I could just see under the blind... And there was a little bit of a, just a breath, and it felt cool. And I could see the blue sky, another beautiful day. And I'd finished college on the Friday. It was my first day off. But then all these things came into my mind, and my joy withered away. Do you know that feeling in the morning? That's what happened to these people. There was such destruction and devastation that led to weeping and wailing, that their joy just evaporated. And so in verse 13, Joel says, there's only one thing that you can do. He says, priests, put on sackcloth and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth. You who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. See how that's still his focus? That's still his key? Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Joel says, as we thought about a little bit earlier on, all this is happening because you've not followed God. You've not kept the promises that you made. You've not kept the covenant. And these curses are coming rightly. You signed up to it, and this devastation and destruction and weeping and wailing is because of what you've done. So so if chapter 1 we see an army of locusts, the image changes in chapter 2. And what we see now is is an army of assassins, a real army. In in chapter 2 verse 1, he tells them to blow the trumpet. But the trumpet in the Bible is is, is always linked with judgment. it's, It's a little bit like, for you Lord of the Rings fans, um, lighting the beacons of Gondor. (laughs) Gondor calls for aid, Rohan will answer. Don't know who will answer here. And and later on in verse 1, again he says, uh, sorry, at the end of verse 2, 
He says that, again, you've never seen anything like it in your life. He's making the claim again. This is just unprecedented. And look at what he says. This day is going to be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. I'm going to just suggest really briefly that I think Joel was possibly talking about an Assyrian army led by Sennacherib in 701 BC, or else maybe a Persian army, a Babylonian army led by Nebuchadnezzar about 110 years later. I think that's what he's talking about. But the picture's clear, isn't it? It's not a good day. It's dark and gloomy and cloudy and black. And when he says the dawn spreading across the mountains, normally dawn's a good thing. It doesn't feel like it's very good here. It feels like it's just something that's unstoppable. As the sun races down the mountainside when it rises, you're not going to be able to stop this army. And look at verse 3. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. It's beautiful. It's luscious. It's full of life. It's, it's planted. It's cared for. It's green. But that's where they've not been yet. What's behind them? Behind them, where they've come through, where they've trampled over, it's a desert waste. It's nothing. It's empty. The, the, this army was a little bit like the SAS. An elite unit of soldiers, killing machines, an army of assassins. One commanding officer in the SAS said, many are called, few are chosen. Just because you apply doesn't mean that you're going to get in. They have really high standards. Let me read some of these verses, verse 4 to 9. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. If they're coming at you, you run the other way. And if for whatever reason you can hold your courage and face them, they won't back down anyway. The arrows are flying at them. They stay in formation. Climbing walls, getting through windows... They're elite. And in verse 10, it's not just other nations that are scared of them. It's the earth itself. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. We've got to be asking the question, what type of army is this? Well, verse 11 tells us, because at the head of that army, even if it is a human army of Assyrians, it's not Sennacherib at the head. And, or, or if it's Babylonians, it's not Nebuchadnezzar at the head. Who's at the head? In verse 11, the Lord himself. 
the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. This is God wielding a human army in judgment against Judah who have turned away from him. And so Joel asked the question at the end of verse 11. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? I wonder if you think you know the answer. I think I know the answer. The silence is deafening, isn't it? Who can withstand an army like that? Doesn't sound like there's been given much wiggle room. And, and, and I think as we read Joel today, I, I think that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. So, so here's the question that I've been thinking about this week. What are we to do when God says he'll judge you? What are we to do when God says he'll judge you? Now, before we go on, you might have loads of questions right now, and that's great. It's brilliant that you've got questions. You might be thinking, okay, we've already established that we don't like being judged. What makes you think I'm going to like the rest of what you've said about being judged by God? Or you might have the question, who is God? Who is God to judge me? Those are great questions. Later on, I'd love to catch up with you. I'd love to talk about them more. I'm sure Daph would too. But, but, but let me just say, I just want to suggest that we all want justice, don't we? We all want justice. Uh, che Guevara, uh, the, the socialist leader, he said this, If you tremble with indignation at every injustice, then you are a comrade of mine. Socialism, many great causes through the years have all been built on fighting against injustice, fighting for justice. If, if you go into Google, whenever you go home, please not now, and you type in, the, the British criminal justice system is, and it drops down, and the first result is, broken. Because so many people feel that it is. Because people who people feel should be in prison, who are maybe evading tax and are white and are very rich, so can pay a very good lawyer, they don't end up in prison. And people who can't afford a lawyer, they do end up in prison, sometimes unjustly. What do kids always say? Kids always say, it's not fair. There's a few people who say, no, I've heard that today, many times. It's not fair. But then what do they do? They go to find a judge. They go to mummy or daddy or a teacher to tell them whether or not it is fair. What was one of the big controversies at the World Cup? VAR. Why was VAR brought in? Against injustice. I'm sure FIFA put it something like that. Because we don't like injustice. We want justice. And so if we do want justice, then we need a judge. And God is that judge. Um, I've, I've got a son called William. William's nearly two. Um, I love William very much, but obviously I'm biased. Um, he's, he's great, um, but he is naughty. Naughty is a word that you can use about him. He is naughty. One of the things that he's not allowed to do is he's not allowed to touch the fireplace. That might have something to do with the fact that I felt it would be easier for Sarah to create 
boundaries for him around the fireplace than for me to actually attach it to the wall. But that's, a, that's another thing. So he's not allowed to touch the fireplace because it might fall on top of him. If I see him touch the fireplace, I, I will give him my sternest... Uh, and no matter what happens, first thing he'll do is he'll cry because <laughs> he knows that he's in trouble. But then there's two paths that he can follow. One, which he normally follows, is that he runs away. He runs away from the trouble that's coming. He knows he's done something wrong, so he flees. He's not very fast. He's really, I'm not very fast, but I'm faster than him, so I can get him. The second path that sometimes happens is that when he knows that he's in trouble with me, even though he cries, he still chooses to run to me. Because I'm his dad. Even though I'm the one who's going to give him in trouble, I'm also someone who loves him. Even though I'm the one who's going to put him on his naughty stool, I'm also the one who can comfort him. That's a really pale shadow of what God says in verse 12. Because in Joel chapter 2 verse 12, after talking about this judgment that's coming, God says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. God speaks here. All of this is God's word through Joel. But this is the only time in, in these verses that it specifically says that it's God that is speaking. And God says, Joel's been right <laughs> You need to do what he says. You need to return to me. You need to turn to me. If you've been coming along for a little while, you might have heard the word repent. That's what repentance means. You were going away from God, but God says, come back to me. Turn to me. Change your direction. And in verse 13, it's interesting that in the whole of Joel, unlike many prophecies, Joel doesn't specifically tell uh, Judah what they've specifically done wrong. It's left very general. You've not been following God. But, but here in verse 13, he does say, rend your heart and not your garments. Maybe they've become really good at hollow apologies. When, when I was about uh, 18 or so, um, uh, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I don't come out of it looking very good, um, but uh, we played a prank on a friend and it went really badly wrong and he no longer thought it was a prank. <laughs> and afterwards, he asked that we write him a letter of apology, which even now sounds a bit precocious whenever you're 18, but still, we had offended him. Um, I did write him a letter of apology, but honestly, I didn't mean it. Some of my friends decided that they didn't mean an apology enough that they didn't even bother writing him a letter. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know which one of us was, was right or wrong. The, the right thing would have been to be truly sorry and actually write a letter of apology. But God says here he's not after a hollow apology. He, he doesn't want a letter that says, yeah, it's for show. You can tear your clothes off and make a big show and say that you're sorry. You can go along to the temple and put on your sackcloth and you can sit and you can fast and pray and weep and wail. What I care about is your heart. I, I, I want you to be truly sorry. True turning. True 
repentance. And God says that if you truly repent, then he will relent. If you truly repent, if you truly turn to him, then he will truly turn his judgment away from you. That's what he says to Judah. And, and in, verse, in verse 13, um, this is really important because remember what we saw in verse 11. At the head of this army of judgment is God himself. You might be asking the question, well, why, why would I trust him to run to? It's because of his character. This is who God is in verse 13. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending Calamity. This is the very name of God, which was first revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, uh, 34. It comes up again in Psalm 103 and in Jonah 4. This is who God is. You can run to God even though he is the one bringing the judgment because he's a good father. Because he's gracious, compassionate. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love. And if you truly repent, he will relent. And in verse 14, just look at what the high point of this would be for them. I don't know, after we painted that picture in chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you were there, you might be thinking, oh great, and if, and if that happens, I can finally have a glass of red on a Sunday night whenever I get home. But no, the curse turns to blessing because... The grain offerings and drink offerings are restored. Relationship with God is back on track. That's the key to true repentance. Uh, and and in, in verse 15, the trumpet blows again, and the people do. They call together an assembly. Everyone comes. Doesn't matter if you're old or if you're young. If you're breastfeeding, that's not an excuse, clearly. If you've just got married, doesn't matter. You need to come along. And then in verse 17, we see this picture of the priests. The, the priests, the ones who have been mourning because the Lord has left, it seems. The priests come and they stand. Look at where they stand. They stand and they weep between the portico and the altar. They come to the place of sacrifice. And they stand before the army of judgment that's coming with the Lord at its head. And they cry out to God, Spare your people, Lord. The people stand before the priests. And the priests stand before the judgment and they plead with God to spare them. And at the very end, they say, this is why you should spare them. <laughs> because God, your reputation is important. If, if, if you destroyed us, then what would the other nations say about you? They'd say that you didn't care about us. So spare us because of who you are. Spare us because of your reputation in the world. Spare us for your sake. That's true repentance. Well, that's us at the end, at the end of the, the text today. Did they do it? <laughs> Did it work? 
is, 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 is the only answer. The answer that, um, that, that Joel gives back in verse 14, who knows? <laughs> That'd be a pretty grim way of leaving it. We'll, we'll come back to it next week. Um, but, but I want to come back to that question that we asked a little bit earlier on. What are we to do when God says he'll judge you? Joel's told the people what they should do. But there's, there's great news for us. But because this is a question that we have to answer. We face the judgment of God. We face the day of the Lord. We haven't followed God. We have turned away from him. And, and those priests are just a really puny faint, shadowy picture of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. But because when Jesus was on the cross, he stood before the judgment of God. The song that we sang this morning, Jerusalem, says um, he, he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. What a great line in a song. He stood before the army of the judgment of God that was coming not for Jesus but for us and he stood before it and he cried out spare your people Lord don't spare me take me judge me but spare them and he did that for me and he did that for you And because Jesus took that judgment for us, we don't have to say, who knows? We know that we can't be judged for what we've done because Jesus has been judged instead of us. I've got a a friend. Um, His name's Terry, but I've only ever known him as Big Terry. (laughs) Uh, He's a massive guy. He's from Liverpool. His name's Terry Wilson. Um, Back in 1985, uh, he was a bit of a jack the lad, and he was hanging around with some people that he, he shouldn't have been hanging around with. And, and he went over to the European Cup final, Liverpool against Juventus. Um, some of you may know that uh, there, was, there was hooliganism at that time, and Terry was actually a hooligan. And he was on the terraces, and with a few of his friends, he led a charge against some Italian fans. And they, they pressed back. Uh, and they were caught against the wall, and the wall collapsed, and 39 football fans who were just going to watch the match, they died. T- Terry was uh, caught, he was found, he was tried, he was found guilty, he was locked up. He, he was under the judgment of the nation, rightly. But when he was in prison, he realized that he wasn't just under the judgment of the criminal justice system of the United Kingdom. He was also under the judgment of God. And Terry turned to him. Terry turned to God. And Jesus paid for what Terry had done. Jesus took the judgment that was due from God to Terry. Terry hates what he did. He hates loads of what he did. I can imagine, as you can imagine, he hates what he did on that day. 
1985 the most. He, he now leads reconciliation efforts uh, with, with Italian football fans. Uh, he does some work with um, hooligans in England. He, he works with kids. That's his job. He tries to keep them out of trouble. He runs a unit. Um, but, but if you went along to his church today, you would hear him singing before you saw him. You'd hear him singing before you walked in through the door. If you walked into that church, he'd be the first one to greet you, to give you a hug. He'd invite you around for dinner. He'd invite you to his small group. He'd say, it's better than all the other small groups. Terry was under judgment, rightly. But he turned to God. If, if you haven't yet turned to God tonight, then I really want to urge you this evening to do it. God's judgment is coming, but we've heard tonight that he is a good judge. He's the judge that can save you. If, if you've got questions about judgment, what does judgment, we've talked about judgment a lot, what does it mean I apologize for not explaining it properly. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk, talk to you about it more. What does it look like? If, if, if tonight you, you don't feel like you're ready to do that, I, I would urge you to do this. Why don't you go home this week? And why don't you, uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, come to us afterwards. We'll give you a Bible. We'd love to give you a Bible. And this week, read six verses every day from Joel chapter 1 and 2. And by, by next Sunday, you'll have finished it. And each day, just, just think about that judgment. But then flick forward to Mark and go to Mark uh, chapter 15 and read six verses from Mark. And you'll read about Jesus, the one who you can run to. If you're not a Christian tonight, I, I, I really would implore you to come to him tonight. But if not, please do that. Come and talk to me afterwards. And, and for those of us tonight who, who are Christians, I think we need to think tonight about sin and about half-heartedness. And, and to say that we need to talk about half-heartedness, some of us might need to just make sure that we're not labeling ourselves with being half-hearted when actually we've never come to Jesus before. But if tonight you know that you're half-hearted. If, 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 if for a while we've been tearing our clothes and making a show, but it's not affected our heart, not read the Bible for a week or a month or, or maybe longer, if you didn't want to come here tonight, if you've become really skillful at playing that part, then this passage calls for true Repentance. True heart repentance. R repentance that, that only comes from God, first and foremost. Only comes from running to God. And, and that's what so often happens with sin, isn't it? That, that when we sin, we want to run away from God. But that's because we don't know God's character well enough. Because when we sin, what we need to do is run to God. Because he is good and gracious and compassionate. And, and in running to God, the passage also says that, that we need to weep and wail over sin. I've been really challenged by this. 
Daffasters this morning, when was the last time we wept and wailed over the loss? Well, maybe part of the reason why we haven't done that for a while is because it's been a long time since we've wept and wailed over sin, our own sin. And the passage also talks to us about, about coming together, gathering together with God's people, not staying away. Uh, this week, um, I've got up beside my bed right now. This, this, is, this is how I'm going to attempt this week with God's help to do something of what this passage says. I've, I've got, a, got a bit of note paper beside my bed. Every day, I'm going to write down one thing that I've done wrong. I mean, I'm going to have to take my pick. Trust me on that. I'm going to write down one thing that I've done wrong. And I'm going to thank God that Jesus has been judged of that instead of me. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time praying about it and thanking him for it. And asking God to make me see my sin more clearly. And as I do that, to run to him. Because I am so tempted all the time when I sin to run away. But God is the best father. And he says, come back to me. I am where you will find your refuge. We'll see that in Joel chapter three. Chapter 3. And, and, and maybe just, just to speak for a moment to those who, who earlier on uh, it resonated with you that you feel judged. I, I know that that can be hard. But, but, but maybe it's helpful to remember that Jesus has been judged for you. If you know him, then the, the only judgment that ever really mattered, as much as judgment is hard, daily it is but the only judgment that ever really mattered has been taken it's on Jesus and, and that's a helpful thing to remember when we feel judged so can I just urge you tonight to run to the person who cried out for you to be spared who took the judgment of God instead of you run to him tonight let me pray. Father, this, this portion of your word calls for hard things. It talks about hard things. We really ask for your help, even now. Father, tonight, on into this week, that you would, by the power of your spirit, work in our hearts. Father, for those who don't know you, Father, we ask that they would run to you tonight, that they would see you as a great God, a good judge who wants them to run to you. And Father, for those of us who are half-hearted, Father, challenges and changes. Father, it's risky to pray, but do whatever it takes. Please, Lord, we thank you for your word. In your name, amen.